Well, amen. Our scripture reading today comes from uh, the third chapter of the Gospel of Luke. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah. And John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I is coming, and I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the, fat, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. May God add his blessing to this reading. Well, uh, Amanda and I have been on the road for more than a month. I didn't actually count, 36 days, 30, it was a long time on the road. Uh, between when we packed our stuff away in two moving pods in early December until this past Tuesday night, we had slept in nine different beds in nine different states. And I have to tell you, uh, after a few nights of being back in our own bed, there's really nothing like it. <laughs> you can survive without your kitchen utensils. You can survive without your, most of your clothes. But a month without your own bed, that is a, it's a long time. <laughs> so we had a great time during this month in between calls. We got to see lots of family, we got to spend time with people we know, know in Arizona, in New York, in a very short two days in Boston, Massachusetts. We have been on the road this past month, and it, it has been this sense of feeling uprooted, of feeling a little bit unsettled. It feels a little bit like wandering in a wilderness, you could say. And if you've ever driven through West Texas, I would tell you, a lot of our drive was wilderness. <laughs> but on our, our final drive, our final day of driving, we stayed the night uh, just a little over a week ago in Memphis, Tennessee. And we woke up really early that morning so we could get here to make it to the uh, apartment management company to get our keys and sign our papers. As we drove out of Memphis, it was still dark, and our cat, Kobe, who had been diligently sleeping at Amanda's feet all drive, suddenly perked up and stood on Amanda's lap and peered out the window into the darkness. This is Kobe. It's short for Kabusha, by the way. I am sure that she was just tired and bored of sitting down there and wanted to see what was going on. But honestly, I thought for a moment that she had decided that this was now her trip. And she was going to tell us where we were going. We've been in this car for weeks. It is time to get somewhere, is what I imagine her saying to us. And I'm going to tell you, I, at that point, was pretty ready to follow her wherever she went. 
There is just something satisfying about having a, a home, a landing place, a place that is yours with your things and your bed and your spaces and your chairs. There is something about having familiarity that is just nice. On the other hand, what we learn from the Gospels is that Jesus is so rarely found in those places. Jesus doesn't approach us in comfort. And in the Bible, Jesus approaches very few people with a sense of familiarity. And I think today we can read this passage of John the Baptist in the wilderness and all of the people of Israel going out to him and saying, are you the one, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for? It's a story that I think that we, we know. That search for familiarity, for somebody who looks and sounds and acts like the one who will deliver Israel. You see, when John appears in the wilderness offering a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Israel is in the midst of their own wilderness. Uh, Israel, at the time that John goes to the wilderness, Israel is, is under occupation by the Roman Empire. They are a people who are not in control of their own destiny. And really, this is a predicament that if you were one of these early Hebrew people, you'd be familiar with. Much of the Hebrew religion, much of the Hebrew scripture is written by a people who are constantly in need of being rescued by foreign powers. The original story in the Hebrew scriptures is Egypt and the slavery. The people get themselves in a predicament and God comes and calls a follower, Moses, and Moses comes and rescues the people. And if you go further down the history of Israel, you get to things like the Babylonian exile when Israel again gets itself conquered by a foreign power and exiled to Babylon hundreds of miles away. And again, the people need to be rescued by God. And so in the midst of this current occupation in which John is living, in which the people of Israel are living, there is this sense that God will do something new. And that sense comes out of their own history. In the past, we have been a people in a wilderness, lost, conquered, destroyed, knocked down, and God has come and has liberated us and freed us and rescued us. And so the people of Israel come out to John and they wonder, could this be the one who is to come? The one who we know God is going to call? And you've got to think about John. I really like the character of John. Uh, I'm not going to lie, this might be the neatest you will ever see my hair. <laughs> I, the, John is this figure who appears in the wilderness wearing camel's cloth and eating locusts and honey. And he always has in the icons the messy hair and the big bushy beard. And I've got, I've got to tell you, he fits the mold of who a prophet ought to be. He speaks with the fire of a prophet. You can hear Jeremiah or Ezekiel in his voice. He appears in the wilderness like the prophet 
that Isaiah describes, the one who comes to make straight the paths of the Lord. Even his proximity to the Jordan River today would have sparked the memory of people. In the book of Joshua, when the Hebrew people, after their liberation from Egypt, come into the Holy Land, it begins with crossing the Jordan River. And so you can see in John's baptism that this might be a new call to enter the Jordan River and cross back into the Holy Land. John fits the bill. And so, in a pretty forward fashion, they ask, are you the Messiah? Because you look like him. You look like the ones we've seen before. Are you the one who has come to rescue us from our wilderness, to guide us back? And so I think we can all sympathize with the people gathered at the Jordan. We all have a sense that God is doing something new. But if we're not careful, we might trick ourselves into believing that the first familiar voice, the first familiar message, the first familiar vision for what the future will be is the right one. After all, I think each one of us has in our minds, in our imaginations, an image of what we're looking for. We know what a good Christian person looks like. We know what a church looks like. We know what a minister looks like. We have seen them before. You know, I'm going to tell you, when I was in divinity school, I struggled a lot with what a minister looked like. With what a minister was supposed to be. See, this is, I think, the, the difficulty when you're, I'm an introvert. This will surprise many of you all, but uh, it's one of the things that I define myself by the most. And it's sort of an ironic thing that the ministers you notice most aren't introverts, because of course the ministers you notice most are the ones who are active and up there and big and bold personalities and energetic. And you, are you getting the image? And you know what, I, I can play that role from time to time, but it's not really who I am. I'm introspective, I tend to be introverted, uh, I'm a thinker, I would rather be studying for the next sermon than leading the youth in energizers. I can do it, but I, it's not really who I am. So when I was in divinity school, I looked around at all these ministers that were that, and for a while, I thought that that was what you were supposed to do. And so I thought that my goal in divinity school was to figure out how to become that person, how to mold myself into that. And if you have ever tried to shape yourself into something that you're not, if you've ever tried to change who you are, it, it doesn't work. Eventually, who you are catches up with you. And so this all came for a, to a head for me in my second year in divinity school. So I had been charged by the youth pastor at the church where I was interning at to lead a youth group. Uh, he was going to be out of town. And I've got to tell you, 
Mike, who I'm still friends with, is like the archetype charismatic pastor. He might be the most likable person I've ever known. Uh, booming preacher voice, just whatever image you have of like the perfect pastor, he might fit it. He has his shortfalls, don't get me wrong. So he charged me with leading youth group, which I spent months planning. And as a good introvert, I decided that my contribution would be to do, we were gonna go to the local labyrinth and introduce the youth to a different way of prayer, quietly, in silence. And this plan was all set up and ready to go. And this is like the best story to tell this morning, because this is what I'm gonna tell you. The forecast for that Sunday in December turned grim. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in the south when it snows. I was in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, three inches of snow will, will shut the city down. And so I had, was called to be youth pastor, and that afternoon I was getting calls from the parents. Are we going to have youth group? The roads are going to be bad. Are we going to have youth group? And it was the first time in my life where I had to step into this role of making a decision as a pastor. And I was terrified. I spent the entire day thinking, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. And having to make all these phone calls, again, not an introvert's favorite thing to do. And I talked to the senior pastor, and his policy was, because he lived in the house next door to the church, we don't cancel anything. <laughs> and so I decided, I'm not gonna cancel. I made the decision. I stepped into that pastoral authority, and it felt so good. And I'm gonna tell you, we gathered that night, it must have snowed a foot. <laughs> we had about 15 youth. I set up one of the rooms in the church with prayer stations. You know, we had a prayer bead station, and we had a Lectio Divina station, and we had a, a candle lighting intercessory prayer station, and it was all silent. 15 youth between the age of probably 10 and 18 and it went great. It was fantastic. And it was capped off with when it was over, all the kids ran out into the snow and made snowballs, and, and it was a fantastic night. And then I got in my car to drive home. So you don't know this, because we just got rid of it about right before we left Portland. I, for the last 15 years, have driven a tiny Toyota Tacoma pickup truck that is real-wheel drive and maybe weighs, might be less than me, frankly. <laughs> and I went to pull out of the parking lot and I got to the edge of the street and turned and I went to turn left onto the street and I just kept turning. And I drove about another 10 feet and made a very precarious right and made it about another 50 feet before the truck spun and turned around, at which point I realized that because it was real wheel drive, if I went backwards, I had more traction, and so I went backwards towards the street. And I pulled into a parking lot, and I pulled back out and righted myself, and went to turn onto the main drag, and at about five miles an hour, slid pretty precariously into a light pole, and pulled my car into a vehicle, into a parking lot, and called a friend from my house who had a more sturdy car. He came and got us. I kid you not, we went and got ice cream. <laughs> and we went home. 
And I tell you this story because for me, this story became a point in my ministry where I realized that I could claim my authority, that I could, I led this very quiet, silent prayer. And I've got to tell you, at the end of the year, six months later, one of the youth said that it was his most memorable events. I had to call parents and make a decision. And it ended, frankly, pretty bad. It ended with my car having a dent that it still has to this day because it wasn't enough damage to take it in. And I... I realized in this moment that ministry is one of those things that you might have models of what it's supposed to look like, what it's supposed to be like. You might have an idea, but in the end, it requires that you take the chance to do it a little bit differently. And if it goes really poorly and you can't get home because your car isn't very good on ice, it still works. You can make mistakes and take chances and you can do things not the way they've been done and you should be safe. Don't drive on ice. I know now. But it was for me this moment of realizing that I didn't have to fit the mold of the ministers that I had seen. That I didn't have to do the thing that, that I thought was what you were supposed to do as a minister. And so I stand here before you as uh, somebody who is still figuring out how to be a minister, who's still figuring out how to be a Christian, frankly. I think it's, there's a Christian writer who says that we are all becoming Christians. None of us are actually there yet. And as we gather here, I I bring this message because it is clear that the church is in a time of, of really radical change. And I don't mean... First Christian Church of Lafayette. I mean Christianity, the church. This is a time of great transition. What it means to be church, what it means to be institutional is changing. And along with that, what it means to be Christian is changing. The old models don't work anymore. And there are, I mean... If you go online right now and search church decline, you'll get like a gazillion <laughs> articles. Everybody has a reason why it's there. Everybody has an explanation for it. But whatever the reason for this is, it is happening. And so I think it is easy for us to be like the people of Israel who gather at the Jordan looking at John the Baptist to go look for the same dyed-in-the-camel's-wool prophet that has been here before. It is easy to look for the one in the wilderness who sounds like the ones who have led us in the past. But like those people in the wilderness, we we seek not the one who, who is familiar, who sounds like what we expect someone to sound like, but rather we seek the one who is to come. The one who John says, you're not going to believe the one who will come after me. And if you try to put the one who's to come into a box, define them, say that this is who Jesus is, you're going to learn in the Gospels over and over again that Jesus is going to confound every expectation you put on him. 
Every time you try to make Jesus into some archetypal cookie-cutter form, Jesus will break the mold. And this is the story of Jesus, of the Messiah, of the Savior, of the Word made flesh. That there is no blueprint. There is no way that God has to be. And so if you go searching for the one who is to come with the expectation that God will look the same that he did yesterday or last week or last year or last century, you will be disappointed. And so we gather, like the people of Israel gathered at the Jordan in search of God. This is a search that has us wondering what the future of Christianity will look like, what the future of the church will look like. We are, as the text says, full of expectation. But we need to heed the direction of John the Baptist. There is one who is coming who is like nothing you have known before. And in this journey, in this wilderness, in this time of not having your own bed to sleep in, of not having the familiar comfort of what has been, I think we should take a little bit of solace in how this passage ends. For Jesus approaches John for his own baptism. Jesus goes into the water with John the Baptist, and John takes him, and they do the baptism, and the miraculous thing opens. For before Jesus has done anything, before the miracles and the teachings, before the death and resurrection that is to come, the skies open and a voice speaks, You are my son, the beloved, with who I am well pleased. It is the truth that the gospel rests on the fact that God loves us not because of what we've done, but because of who God is. That love is unconditional, and it is for everyone. Whether you're in the wilderness, whether you're lost, whether you're not sure where you're going. And so as we journey into the future of the church, as we learn to let go of our expectations for what it means to be church, or what it means to be a Christian, or what it means to be a minister, let us rest on the promise of the one who is to come. That God's love will be with us. That it is already here. And so as we embark on this journey, I wanted to close today with a prayer from one of my favorite writers. This is a prayer that I think I could pray three times a day, and it would never not apply. This is from the Trappist monk, Thomas Merton. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me, and I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. 
And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me. And you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen.